Today's episode is brought to you by Girl Charlie Fabrics. Girl Charlie is your online source for knit fabrics, carrying a wide selection of unique cotton jersey, cotton lycra, brushed poly spandex, French terry, and more. Girl Charlie Fabrics also stocks all the best indie sewing patterns from designers around the world. New customers save 10% on their first order and always get a $7.99 flat shipping rate on any order of any size. So shop now at girlcharlie.com. And now here's the show. Episode 104 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about building an innovative company in the sewing industry with my guest, Fred Drexler. Fred, along with his wife, Joyce, founded Sulky of America, a premier thread and stabilizer company. Fred began his career in the sewing industry in 1965 at the age of 23 when he worked as a salesman for the Singer Company in Akron, Ohio. In 1969, he opened his Singer dealership in Punta Gorda, Florida, and met Joyce in 1974. She founded Speed Stitch, the company that popularized free motion embroidery using a domestic sewing machine. And in 1987, Speed Stitch partnered with a German thread manufacturer to form Sulky of America. Fred Drexler, welcome. Well, good morning, Abby. It's great to talk to you. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you here and to hear about the story of your business. And you began working in the sewing industry a long time ago. So in March of 65, you were just 23 years old. How did you get a job as a singer salesman? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, uh, I had been in the Air Force shortly after high school for four years. And when I got out of that and got married, uh, moved back to Akron, Ohio, and uh, um, we had bought a sewing machine trying to build credit. We bought it on uh, 90-day terms and uh, uh, paid that off, and I was working in another job uh, and uh, decided to leave that because it looked like it wasn't going anywhere. Uh, and so as I was looking for a job, the uh, district manager for Singer um, called me up and wanted to uh, talk to me about my payments on the, on the sewing machine. Um, and so I asked him to come to the house, and he did. And I showed him the receipts that I had. And apparently the manager of the store was uh, not very honest and, and hadn't uh, recorded those payments. So uh, anyway, one thing led to another. And after we cleared up the business aspect of that, he he said, uh, you know, what, what are you doing for a living now? And I said, well, actually, I'm looking for a job. And he said, well, you know, um, I, I think we might have an opening for you at a, at a local singer store um, selling sewing machines. And I thought, you know, that's the furthest thing from my mind. Uh, I can't imagine how uh, or, or why I would want to sell sewing machines. But uh, he said, uh, well, why don't you go talk to the manager of the store? And I did, and it was a young fellow they had just brought in, and uh, I just connected with him instantly and uh, mm-hmm. realized that I could really learn something from this this uh, uh, young manager. And uh, so I thought, well, you know, I'll, I'll do this until I find out what I really want to do with my life. And uh, so sure enough, I started working uh, the next week, and uh, – Within uh, within nine months, he was uh, 
he had moved on to another store and they uh, had decided to close the store I was in. So that um, uh, led to them asking me to manage the store until they closed it, which I did. And then they offered me another store to manage in Akron, managed that store for a year and a half, uh, moved to Florida and uh, uh, became a manager there of a store uh, in uh, in uh, Orlando uh, area. And uh, eventually, or within a very short time, they moved me to a much larger store in Gainesville, stayed there for a year and a half, and then opened my own uh, dealership in 1969. I see. So this really, it's funny because it, you know, you figured you just do this job until you figured out what you wanted to do with your life. And it turned out this did lead to what you wanted to do with your life. So, um, so that's interesting. So, so you met your wife, Joyce, who, who played a significant role in, in the growth and development of Sulky. And you met her in 1974. I'm wondering how the two of you met. Uh, well, that's a, that's an interesting story as well. I think uh, we it was really on a blind date. Uh, I was uh, in a theater company at the time, and uh, uh, four of us had, uh, had decided to to uh, start a theater company to do uh, uh, plays like Neil Simon comedies and that sort of thing. And uh, we uh, had bought a house to do the rehearsals in, and uh, to. Uh, figure out our staging. So as we uh, did that, uh, a friend of mine came to me and he was going through a divorce and needed a place to live. And he was a deputy sheriff who worked nights. And uh, so we rented our house to him to live in during the day. And we used it at night to do our rehearsals. And uh, that led to uh, conversations about who each of us was dating. I had gone through a divorce a, a year prior to that. And uh, ultimately, uh, he led me to uh, uh, the girl he was dating had a had a best friend, and uh, he invited her to come to one of our dress rehearsals. Um, and uh, that's how I met Joyce at uh, doing a, uh, at a dress rehearsal in this small house. And uh, ironically, we were doing a play called Norman Is That You, and I was playing a homosexual at the time. And, uh, uh, that was, that was her first introduction to see me on, <laughs> on stage doing that. So <laughs> anyway, that's funny. Okay. And, and it was really a, a good match because she was also involved in the sewing industry. So even though you were meeting outside of sewing, you were meeting, you know, through a friend of a friend at a play, but um, but she was really already involved in sewing, and and I wondered how she how she got into it. Um, she's not here to tell that part, so maybe you can tell that for her. I, I will, and actually, uh, she she was not really involved in the sewing industry at all when we first met. She okay. was working she was working for an accountant, and uh, she uh, had brought her sewing machine in to my store to be serviced. Uh, in, in the first year or two that I was there. And I had no recollection of that, but she remembers that pretty vividly. Uh, but anyway, after after we met and, and uh, dated and, and eventually got married, uh, she uh, um, began to do some creative things in our store. She really designed the look of our store. And, and uh, the, the girls that worked for us at that time, they were teaching there, was encouraging her to... to uh, learn uh, more about that. And she ultimately uh, 
um, took a, a all day class on doing free motion embroidery from a dealer friend of mine in a town about 80 miles away and uh, was pretty terrible at it to start with. Uh, but she practiced and practiced and got really, really good at it and eventually started teaching it in our retail store. And people who loved to take her classes because uh, of the methods that she had developed to teach them, uh, they were all uh, loving coming to, to her classes and uh, uh, loving to learn this creative hobby. And uh, the, uh, eventually, everybody kept telling her, you know, we'd love to learn. You show us how to do it. We do it while we're here. Then we go home. And there's another picture we want to do, but we don't quite know how to hold the hoop to make, you know, to make wings and flowers and leaves and, and so forth uh, by getting the, the thread to flow. So it looks like looks like a leaf. And uh, so she developed uh, uh, kits that she uh, drew patterns and drew directional arrows on those patterns so that people could see which way to turn the hoop and hold the hoop as they were making uh, the various different uh, elements of free motion embroidery. And eventually that led to, you know, in, in the beginning, uh, we were selling uh, uh, a, a DMC cotton thread to do this in our store uh, back in the late 1970s. And um, so these kits would include, you know, full spools of thread and, and the design. And uh, ultimately, as people just really loved that whole process, we uh, got together and figured out how to make the kits a whole lot more affordable for a, for a, a national market. And um, so that, that led to us um, figuring out that we could put exactly the amount of thread that people needed in, in the uh, kits so that they would be able to do each one of the design elements. Now, of course, black and white was always the bigger amounts, but the, and sometimes they had full spools in there. But we had uh, we had a cadre of people winding bobbins uh, of the various different colors that, uh, that we needed in in, uh, in the initial kits. Uh, they were full bobbins and half bobbins, so some just accent colors didn't need a full a full bobbin. Um, so as as she figured that whole process out. And uh, we ultimately ended up with uh, with the first seven kits uh, and that uh, taught the basics of free motion and then six different designs. Uh, and we made those up and sold them as black and white to start with. Uh, ultimately, we added, uh, instead of just giving the design to people, on a paper, uh, we started printing that design on nylon organdy so that the, the consumer didn't have to figure out how to get that onto nylon organdy. That's what was going to be put into the hoop in order to be able to do the, the embroidery design. Um, so we, uh, again, started with the black and white design on, on the uh, nylon organdy, put the right amount of, of thread in there for them to complete the project. Uh, wrote the directions for uh, for doing the whole project and, and had those printed, and uh, and then did a a, a black and white um, uh, picture of what the design was going to look like in the front. Um, and, and those were the early kits in 1978, uh, 79. Uh, and then in 1980, uh, we decided to go for full color. 
in the in the printed front and uh, uh, at the time we did that then we went to New York and uh, to talk to the singer company about doing uh, this as as a national thing we wanted to sell the idea to them do the production do the teaching but let them do the marketing of this because they you know certainly had dealers all over the country and and we we weren't that well known around the country at that point um, singer folks really loved what we were doing and um, they the vice president that we talked to after um, he took it to the rest of the the company to talk to him about it they they all loved it mm. and said we uh, really see how you're you've been selling substantially more sewing machines because you're teaching this in your store we want that to happen around the country but you know this isn't in our five-year plan to do this we can't do it immediately and we think it needs to be done but so we'll support you and they were a terrific support in the early days uh, helping to promote our, our first classes on this and uh, Joyce put together a three-day seminar to teach teachers how to teach this in their store and th that is what really launched the company is uh, is the announcement by Singer to all their dealers around the company uh, country that this was available and and had their high recommendation and um, you know, first so, thing, yeah so this was really this was a kit company basically and then a technique company that sort of sold helped to sell sewing machines and so it was a, a wise move to go ahead and partner with Singer, since you owned a Singer dealership and were doing well selling more machines. And by the way, these were not embroidery machines because embroidery machines didn't quite exist yet. This was just a regular sewing machine that could do a zigzag stitch that you would then, you know, decrease and increase to create these designs. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's very exactly the the case in, in uh, 1980. You know, the first embroidery machine didn't hit the market until 1993. Uh, so this was really light years ahead of that. But yeah, as a matter of fact, our very first ad said, you know, crafty kits for 80 million neglected uh, people. And uh, we were talking about all the people around the country that owned a basic zigzag sewing machine and were able to uh, learn how to do uh, free motion embroidery by buying our kits and our books. And, and our hoops yeah, and, and I think that there's something to be said about timing here because you know, the late 60s, early 70s, late 70s, this was a time of real change in the home sewing industry because for a long time, sewing was economical. It was a way to save money, to make things for your family, for your household. And women were at home to do that. Um, and everyone knew how to sew. That was part of what you knew how to do as a woman. But then we had the women's movement. Things changed. Women got jobs, went back to work. And that was sort of this moment when Joyce had this foresight, I think, to say, okay, sewing, the role of sewing in the home is going to change now. And it can still, as you said, 8,000 or whatever, 8 million, you know, uh, uh, um, neglected sewing machines, that these machines can now become something different, which is a form of creativity, a form of leisure activity, something to do to be creative in your spare time and with your extra money. And that's exactly how how what the thought process was and, and how that all developed. Uh, you know, for, for me, it was an aha moment. You know, in my career, as you said, I started in '65, and and all the training for salesmen at that time was teaching 
you how to make a case to the woman at home uh, of how much they were uh, uh, contributing to the family budget by what they sewed. By putting a dollar value on that, you could you could justify to the working or to not to to the woman at home that what she was doing was contributing thousands of dollars to the family uh, budget by by doing that. And so you know she deserved to have a good piece of equipment to do that on. And uh, you know and thus. That was the whole sales presentation to sell them uh, the first touch and sew sewing machines, uh, and uh, you know the 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 the, one, the average uh, male at home, his response to the female asking the, the wife asking for a new sewing machine was, you know, is the does the old one still work? And if it did, you don't need a new one. So we had to make a case for why they did. Well, you know, that's where we came from. But that whole argument, that whole sales logic was fast going away as women entered the workforce. And, uh, you know, we, we found in our uh, retail store that people would buy top model sewing machines. They'd spend $1,000, which was a lot of money in 1976 and 77, 78 in that area. Uh, they would spend $1,000 for a top model sewing machine because it had great speed control, which you really, really needed uh, on a, uh, you know, in order to do really quality free motion embroidery. And that's really what got the attention of the singer folks is that we were not only selling a lot of sewing machines, we were selling the very highest top model, highest price sewing machine in, in large numbers because of free motion embroidery and because uh, we were selling something that people were enjoying doing. And uh, certainly as we've moved through the years, that that has uh, you know not left our uh, thought process at all that people do not have to do what we're doing. You know, they don't have to buy uh, decorative thread and, 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 and do these kinds of things. And so if, they're, if, if we wanted to attract them to our market, we had to show them it was fun, it was easy, it was fast, it was satisfying and, and very, you know, something very worthy of being a hobby that they would want to do in the evenings. I want to take a moment now to talk with our sponsor, Girl Charlie Fabrics. Here's Heather Peterson, the founder and president of Girl Charlie. And tell me a little bit about Girl Charlie. What is it all about? Well, Girl Charlie Fabrics was started um, by myself uh, a few years ago after the birth of my daughter. You know, kind of typical story looking for cool clothing that I couldn't find. So I decided to teach myself how to sew and started making a small uh, line of clothing for kids. And I really got into knit fabrics at that point. And fast forward to uh, 2010, uh, kind of took that passion and turned it into a business. So Girl Charlie relaunched then um, selling knit fabrics exclusively. Um, online. My daughter is named uh, Charlotte Lee. And so when she was little, we used to call her Charlie. Um, so when we were thinking about a name for business, um, actually a relative was like, why don't you call it Girl Charlie after Charlotte? So that just kind of stuck. And um, she's pretty proud of that now that she's 13 years old, that she's got a company named after her. We are in uh, Long Beach, California, just uh, south of Los Angeles. And is LA a good spot to be located when you're in the knit fabric business? I think so. Yeah, um, we've been pretty lucky about um, being able to work with a lot of, you know, kind of well-known designers on their overstocks or fabrics that they don't use. So we get quite a few unique 
types of knits that you can't really get anywhere else. So that's a real bonus to being in this area. Um, and also, you know, just being such a large port area, we get a lot of access to, you know, fabrics coming in from around the world as well. You know, working with us, Girl Charlie, we're not just a big fabric machine. You know, we try to make it so, you know, we give our customers as much support as they're giving to us. We are online at www.girlcharlie.com. And Charlie is spelled... C-H-A-R-L-E-E. Thank you so much, Heather. And now, back to my conversation with Fred. I'll just jump forward for one quick second um, to the recent collaboration with Cotton and Steel, which is this um, selection of Cotton and Steel branded sulky thread that's really beautifully, you know, spooled even. So each spool has a different sticker and is a different color, the spool itself, and then the thread on it, you know, sort of contrasts. And um, anyway, it's just, and it comes on its own display and there's a beautiful video narrated by Melody Miller, who's the, you know, the creative director of um, Cotton and Steel, showing how this thread was made. And, um, and it just, I thought of it because as you're saying, this is a leisure activity. This is something you're going to do because it brings you satisfaction, feeling of creativity and that sort of thing. And, and in that way, these, the, this particular collaboration is really collectible, really tactile, visually beautiful, um, whether you actually use that thread or not. Mm-hmm, exactly. And, uh, you know, we're, we're just delighted to be partnering with Cotton Steel because they are just tremendously creative and innovative in, in every way. And uh, they certainly have uh, led us down a, a very beautiful path to, to where we have created this magnificent display and 100 gorgeous colors and just super high quality thread. Everything about this is just just says fun and buy me and collect me and. Uh, so that, that's that's been yeah, a very good association. Fun, right. Fun and buy me and collect me. And I think that um, that notion, right, sort of rings true throughout all of these decades, um, even back to when Joyce was coming up with all of this. And education really has been at the heart of what you have done. In other words, being able to teach teachers, teach customers um, through kits and then later through books. And, and Joyce has written a lot of books. Um, um, uh, one of her first books, might, might, maybe it was her first one in 1981, Thread Painting. And I think maybe she sort of coined that term. Is that right? Yes, that's, that's very exactly what happened. Um, she, uh, <clears throat> you know, we wanted to, uh, or she did. I, I, I keep taking the credit for all these things, but <laughs> <laughs> let's be clear about this. My, my role through the years has been administrative. You know, I'm the... I'm the go to the bank and finance the business guy and the hire people and train them and, and organize the business aspects of it. And Joyce is totally the creative end of our business. And anything and everything that's creative about our business has been all Joyce. And, uh, but that balance, uh, so. that balance and partnership, <clears throat> I mean, that balance and partnership is really a necessary and ideal in, in you know, and two people are going to run a business together. So. Exactly. I, you know, certainly, uh, uh, I, I, I don't want to step on her toes in any way <laughs> and, and when it comes to creativity. And uh, uh, it, it, uh, for, for those starting a, a new business uh, in, 
in partnership with your mate. Uh, at, at some point in this conversation, if you want to hear how that how that went, I'll go ahead and sure. share that. Well, why don't we go there now? So, I mean, I think that there are quite a few people out there who are doing just that, where maybe one of them started with the creative business while the other kept a day job. And then over time, it just made sense given the complementary skill set and mm. financial situation for them to work together. Um, I can think of many couples actually who are doing just that. And so um, tell us a little bit about uh, the highs and lows or the ups and downs of that kind of relationship. Okay. Well, you know, certainly we've, any, any partnership in, involving two sides and, and we, we have the partnership of Joyce and I in, in the speed stitch business and then the partnership with the German company and to create Salt Cave America. So I'm very, very cognizant of what happens in partnerships and what, what, what needs to happen and, and how frail they can be if, if not uh, clearly defined at the outset. Uh, but, you know, our, our partnership, the, our, our evolution in, in 1976, I had a really uh, nice retail store in a new mall and, and uh, was doing some really great business. And I opened a second store in a, a town about 30 miles away uh, in 1979. And then about that same time, we had uh, we had the. Uh, Joyce uh, creating these kits and us trying to figure out how to make a business out of that. So, uh, you know, she pretty much ran things in the first year or so of doing that. And uh, um, as we did the trip to Singer and they decided to help us and we started uh, working out of our house, you know, creating uh, kits in the bedroom and living room, uh, and uh, the uh, eventually using our garage to uh, to do the shipping and and uh, you know people starting to come to work at our house every day. Um, the the company in its early stages, you know, had, had some some decent growth, and and Joyce wanted to add certainly new products and. And uh, it was, you know, up to me to figure out how we were going to finance all that. And uh, um, so, the, the first year or two of of, uh, um, of doing Speed Stitch, she was doing a lot of traveling. Actually, the first five years, she did an enormous amount of traveling around the country to teach her three-day uh, programs. And um, so, I, you know, was left to do the to do the selling of those programs to talk to people around the country to get them to sign up and all, all of the organizational aspects of that. Um, so, you know, the, the, she, in the early stages, she was, I was running two stores. She was running this business and uh, there, there became this uh, clash, if you will, uh, at, in around 1982 or so, as we were a couple of years into it. And, uh, uh, the, the the thing to understand about growing a business is that there's there's two ways that you can finance a growing business, and the one is out of profits, and the other is out of your own money uh, or financing, and uh, uh, that re was really becoming an issue uh, in that we were using a tremendous amount of the monies coming from my retail operations to finance this business, and and at some point. Uh, it became clear that, to me anyway, that uh, we needed to we needed to have uh, a, a, a long term business plan to figure out 
what we thought growth was going to be and how we were going to finance it all. And, uh, you know, that became the time to involve going to the bank and, and uh, borrowing money against our house and our life insurance policies and anything and everything we could do to, to uh, uh, get money to finance the growth that we were experiencing. And how, um, long, how long did you hang on to the, the retail store? Did you keep that for a long time after that? I really did. Actually, I ended up selling the, the uh, one <coughs> store um, that I had in, uh, <coughs> in the adjoining town. Uh, in 1983, I sold that store um, so that I could focus more of my energies on on the uh, growing speed stitch business. But uh, by that time, uh, my son, uh, Eric, who's been around our business since uh, since the, the uh, late 1970s, uh, he uh, um, was working in, in our in our store and uh, he became the manager of the store so we ended up keeping that business until 1996 um so it it was a long-term um proposition for us to to be in retail and uh, certainly a, a lot of what we learned about what consumers wanted we learned in our retail stores um so that just you know became the the, uh, the the point where we got to 1996, our 20-year our lease was up, and and uh, you know it, it by that time we'd already been nine years into Salty of America, and uh, uh, just no longer had the the uh, uh, time to even uh, think about what was going on in retail. So we ended up selling that that second store. Okay, I that, see. That so. Part. Right. Okay. I, I actually want to sort of go through the the story of becoming Sulky of America because I think for people to totally understand how this business grew, we need mm-hmm. to sort of trace that. So in 1983, Joyce is getting ready to create these speech stitch kits, and you both together travel to a big trade show called the Bobbin Show. I don't know if that show's still going on or not. I, I did not look into that. Um, yeah. No, it's not. It's not. Okay. But this this was a huge embroidery embroidery trade show. Um, and the two of you traveled together. She saw a booth there, a brand new exhibitor in a small booth um, that was there for the first time from Germany called Gunold. And she caught sight of something in that booth that made her super excited. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that experience of being at the Bobbin show? Yeah, sure. That's, uh, you know, the, the show was in Enormous. It wasn't just for for embroidery, commercial embroidery. It was for every imaginable thing that you would use to make to make a three piece suit or to make any kind of clothing. So there was uh, <clears throat> there was I, I could I could take fifteen minutes to describe all the various different things that were there. But anyway, that the the. Uh, the company that we saw there, uh, they, they were well known uh, in the embroidery industry because of their artistic work. Uh, they would do the what it was called punch needle uh, punching designs so that uh, commercial embroiderers could send them a, a picture of, of, of anything and their artist would convert that into a punch tape that would run through a, a commercial embroidery machine and create that design with uh, with a needle just going straight up and down and with the hoop moving it. So the punch needle, uh, punch tape would would direct the the uh, uh, machine to, uh, as far as the hoop movements that were needed. People would send their designs to Germany to have those have their artists punch them, 
And uh, at some point, uh, Ganol decided that they would uh, come over and, and provide that service directly so people didn't have to wait for designs to be shipped back and forth. Um, you know, there, there wasn't all the technology we have today to be able to send that by computer. Uh, so, uh, so Ganold was ha having their very first show in a single 10 by 10 booth. And we, uh, the Joyce saw that they had, uh, this product called Salvi. Uh, and, and that was the, really the very first time that anybody on U.S. soil knew anything about, uh, a water soluble stabilizer was the Salvi that they, that they brought to the industrial market. Uh, we, uh, Joyce was extremely excited because at that point um, of, of seeing the Salvi, uh, she was flashing back to what was being used at that time to do cut work or any kind of open work stitching across open areas. You would use the, uh, the, the plastic film that the, the dry cleaners would cover your, your clothes with when you pick them up and uh, picking out all those little pieces after that was done was just a, a, a very tedious job. Oh my gosh. And so you would, so you would literally that I'm thinking of that, like, it's like a thin plastic bag, really that, right. That mm -hmm. wraps your dry cleaning. So you would take that and you would, you would lay it over the, the area and then you would stitch because there was no fabric below the stitches were going to be the fabric basically. And then afterward you would go in there with like a little scissors or a pin or something and pick out the little bits of plastic. Yeah, that's how it was done. Wow. So that was that was <laughs> not a great solution. And so she saw this water soluble stabilizer called Solvi. There was nothing like this on the market, but essentially what it would do is after you would stitch over it, you would soak it and then the stabilizer would disappear, leaving just the thread work in place. That's that's exactly how it worked and uh, it worked extremely well. And uh, so you know, she was so excited about that, and uh, we uh, immediately placed an order with them for for some just to take it home and try it. And uh, uh, once she tried it, we, we got together with them and said, you know, we, we'd like to buy this in large quantities and 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 market it under our our own name. <clears throat> so our the initial name for this in, in the U.S. market was called Wash Away. Uh, and uh, we had, had that trademark name and uh, sold that product uh, almost immediately to, to uh, a dozen different distributors and a couple of different chain stores. And uh, just, just really, um, you know, that really launched our company into, into uh, the arena where people that, that uh, uh, distributed products, those, you know, most I don't know if a lot of people understand, but our, our company sells to distributors who sell to stores, who sell to consumers. And uh, so when I talk about a distributor, that's really what I'm talking about is someone who <clears throat> would sell to a retail store who would then sell to the consumers. So so we were able to uh, attract a lot of attention to our company by selling this this product. And, and uh, uh, initially, some of those distributors wanted to uh, wanted to sell our speed stitch kits, too. But uh, we didn't really understand the distribution system uh, in, in terms of what pricing they needed uh, in order to be able to make a profit when they sold to a, a store who sold to the consumer. So we never really did uh, have a very uh, good plan in place to to understand uh, how to sell to distributors, how to get a wider distribution of our product. Um, but indeed, we uh, um, 
when we were able to uh, find the distributors or they found us and wanted to buy that product, uh, that made it uh, our entry in as Sulky of America uh, to be able to sell to distributors uh, that that we had an introduction to that market through that, that whole right. process. So it's interesting, like your kits, although that's where this all started, um, they were like surpassed because you got you, you discovered this consumer domestic consumer application for what was then kind of an industrial product um, mm-hmm. brought it to a new market, which was in the United States that was just taking off. And then that product became the product, became the most popular product. And um, because you were maybe able to price it in such a way that selling to a distributor, which is, you know, like 30% below wholesale was still affordable. Um, so it made it, it worked better than a kit, which really needs to be a hand assembled. And there's a lot of sort of bits and pieces that go into a kit that if you're not pricing for distribute for distribution from in, from the outset, you might price it too low. And then when you do go to a distributor, realize there's no profit in this. Right, right. You, you, you couldn't, they couldn't sell it to the same uh, market that you were trying to sell it to, to create a bigger market. Uh, because there was no pricing in there for them. They, they couldn't compete with the price you were selling it for. Right. So, right. Yeah. I see. So this became really popular, um, this, this Solvi product. Um, and, and then, and the next came thread. And I think most people, well, I, I guess people today see, see both Solvi and Sulky as two things that make up your company. And, but maybe they think thread first, I'm not sure, but, um, but, but that's possible. So, so thread came next and you, it sounded like you had been sourcing some thread already um, from India, but it wasn't super high quality or, or sourcing it wasn't super dependable. And then and then the Viking company uh, came to you in 1985 and asked if you had thread or, or could source the right kind of thread for their new embroidery machine. That, that's really what happened. And the... Uh... Sue Hausman really came to us with a spool of thread that one of the uh, one of their educators had had found in Europe, and it was a spool of a sulky thread. And uh, they were going to be coming out in 1985. It wasn't an embroidery machine yet, but it was doing embroidery-like designs with the decorative stitches on a sewing machine. So in 1985, they brought out a machine that they called had a feature they called pictogram, uh, which really was making pictures using uh, decorative stitches, not free motion or not doing embroidery-like things, but but uh, still picture-like things. And uh, they were looking for a very high-quality thread to do this. And uh, and uh, when we when they brought that spool to us, um, it, it, from the 1983 until 1985, uh, Gnold kept seeing how much product we were selling of their Salvi and they kept saying, you know, why don't you sell our decorative thread? And it's like, well, you know, we we we, we just invested in this other line of thread and, and have invested time and effort and money to market it. And uh, so we weren't real keen on, on doing another line of thread uh, at that point until Viking came to us and said, you know, do you know where we can get this? And I immediately went to Chris Canald and I said, look, you know, uh, send some samples to Viking. Uh, if they like it, uh, can you 
workout uh, pricing to me so that I can sell it to them as a distributor who can sell it to the end user or actually to the, to the store owner and then to the end user. And at the same time, I asked Viking, I said, look, if you like this thread, would you distribute it? Would you be the ones who sell it to your dealers? And, uh, you know, they, they said, well, sure, that would that, that just would make perfect sense for us to do that. And so that is really what happened. They, they loved the thread. They became, became the first distributors of Salty Thread and, and sold it to all of their hundreds of dealers. And uh, uh, we uh, uh, had at that very first spool of thread at that time, we only had the industrial size to be able to sell. And that was a 1,050-yard spool, which had a little wooden, a little not wooden, but a cardboard core, and which stuck out on both ends. And, and uh, that that was the way, you know, they sold that smaller version of their 5,000-meter cone uh, on a 1,000-meter spool. So um, we began to sell that. We created some acrylic displays. Uh, to put 30 colors in, three spools each of 30 colors, and that's how we began selling it to uh, to Viking stores and ultimately in Cloth World and, and to other stores um, in, in other dealerships around the country. So so uh, first, the first issue here was that the, the thread that um, that Gunnold had was really wound on really big spools, like spools that were maybe meant for more of an industrial application. And, and in order for it to be affordable for consumers and sort of realistic for what a consumer, you know, just shopping at their local store would want, it needed to be on a smaller size spool at a lower price. And, and, and so that was one thing that Gunnold had to, had to do was to get different equipment to make that happen. But what about this thread was different than the other, you know, there was thread in the market. So why, why was this something that Viking was like, Hey, this is what we really need. I mean, was it, was it different in some way? Well, you know, I, I think the, you know, the obviously difference was the quality. I mean, they're, they're just, this is the highest quality thread made from the highest quality raw goods available in the world. And, and it, it was then and it is now, and it's the same manufacturing process with the same raw goods. So quality was really number one for them. And, uh, you know, in, in the early days, you know, that first spool of thread sold for $5, which was a lot of money for a spool of thread in 1985. And uh, the, the uh, process of getting from 1985 to 1987 when we did a partnership, uh, is this a good time to talk about that? Or you... Sure. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So you, you, I mean, we, we had taught, we sort of touched on this idea of financing and you were talking about whether, you know, you can finance with, by, by basically taking the profit of the business and putting it back into uh, the business, investing it back, or you can um, go, you know, use your own money or, or borrow money from the bank. And, um, and so you, you were in charge of figuring that out all along. And, and in order to, start importing and selling thread now, in addition to selling Solvi, um, you needed financing. And so, uh, so how did you work out how to, how to partner with them to make that happen? Cause that's a pretty significant, uh, business move. Well, it was for both of us. And, and, uh, it, it really, you know, once we started selling a large amount of the, 
of the 1,050 yard spool, you know, Joyce, you know, and I both said, look, if we could get this on a smaller spool and bring that price down, I think we could really explode this market. And so, you know, our discussions with, with uh, Ganold were, were, were based on that. Every time we talked to them over the next year, uh, that was the conversation. And uh, so finally, one day, you know, Chris came to me and said, look, if you, uh, in order to do this whole process, we're going to, in order to do a smaller spool, we're going to have to buy all new equipment to be able to wind that. And uh, so, you know, how, how many spools do you think you could sell? And so we can get a, a concept here of how, how this whole thing would work. And so, you know, I, I put together a business plan, which I highly encourage for any new business starting up is to is to put together a business plan, go to your bank, go to your small business association or community colleges anywhere to learn how to put together a really solid business plan. Uh, so anyway, by that time, I, I had learned how to do that. I put together a business plan on how, what I thought uh, we could sell, how, how we uh, would market it. And, uh, and and the whole every aspect of the financing, I took that to my bank, and I said, "Look, here's what here's what I think we can do, and here's how I think we can we can uh, grow this business." And and uh, uh, if if the partners or the not the partners at that point, but if our if our uh, manufacturer is willing to buy the equipment, here's what I think we can do. Well, the bank assured me that we didn't have enough capital or or uh, uh, the wherewithal to be able to finance that sort of operation. And when I took it to, to Chris Canold, he looked at all of that and said, you know, I, I'm going to have to invest, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars in new equipment here, and I'm going to have one customer to sell this to, and that's you. And so at that point, both of us sort of said, well, you know, why don't we, why don't we do this together? Why don't we, we see if we can put together a partnership where, where you know we apply our expertise we knew the marketplace after being in the in the national international marketplace for seven years we understood how to market to that to that home sewing uh crafting customer and uh and, and they knew how to uh do the manufacturing and, and we're doing it extremely well but their u.s offices in in atlanta or marietta georgia at that time uh they uh had had a nice size warehouse and they had all the facilities to be able to do the shipping, the accounting and everything having to do with that aspect of the business. So the partnership developed, uh, you know, we, we, we both brought things that we wanted the, to, the understandings to be in the partnership and how everything would go buy sell agreements, what to do in the event of, of disagreements, um, just every aspect of a business. Um, we studied all of that and, and we brought uh, solutions to all of those things so that, you know, answered every what if right. uh, bef before we started like, the partnership. It, yeah, it's kind of like writing a will where you need to think through all of these scenarios that you don't want to have happen. But if they mm -hmm. did happen and, and things were, you know, one partner needed or wanted to leave, there was a disagreement that couldn't be resolved, all of those things. But you have to lay those out in advance. It's also, you know, with the finances, who's going to contribute what, when and, and for how long and all of that so that you can make sure that you're, you're starting with perfectly clear communication. Right, exactly. And you talked about financing. And in the early years, we really just the two 
side financed Salki of America for the first several years before we really got banks involved. Uh, <clears throat> and that was, um, you know, done by virtue of they, they had an operation that they were selling their products and their services to the industrial market. We had speed stitch that was selling to, to our side of the business. And, and so both companies were profitable and they were using some of their profits to finance the, the, uh, the growth of Selkie of America. And indeed, you know, the, the, uh, it was, it was a true partnership in that nobody took any salary uh, out of this. Uh, and, and the only thing that we ever did was do profit distributions and we would decide at our annual meetings, whether any, you know, how much or if any profits were going to be distributed because, you know, we started with a very small amount of money that each, each partner put into this. And, uh, and, and, you know, pretty much just let it ride for uh, the first probably six or seven years before there was any profit distribution. Right. Um, and I think that's also important for people to hear, because I think there's sometimes is an expectation that things are going to be successful right away. And what success means is that there's profits right away. And, and that is not always the case or often the case. Well, that's true. And, and a lot of times, you know, new businesses will I'll get to talk to them in the booths that I still do at, at uh, trade shows. And, uh, you know, they, they'll ask for my advice on different things. And, you know, the, the first thing that I want them to do is a business plan, uh, like, like I mentioned earlier, but uh, and, and, and a path on how they're going to finance things and, and, and gauge their own. Uh, their own commitment to this. Are they, you know, are they fully committed? Are you willing to do a second mortgage on your house? Are you willing to cash in your IRAs and, and uh, uh, you know, whole life insurance policies, borrow against those? We, we, we had to do all those things and, uh, and, and work for several years without taking any money out of the speed stitch business. We, we did the first three years of that business uh, with a commitment that we wouldn't take a, a, a nickel out of it. And we didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and then we pretty much worked each of us for a minimum wage for the next several years after that. But, you know, you, you, you look at the growth of the business and you see where that money went. You know, it's in here in inventory, it's in receivables. It's in, uh, and to be clear, you you had people working for you and you were paying them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So they were paying they were basically your employees were earning more than you were. <laughs> Well, they, you know, they, they, when you own a business, uh, if, if you run it properly, everybody gets paid and then you get what's left over. Right. And uh, that's your incentive to make profit <laughs> for sure. Right. I mean, uh, I think investing in people is sometimes the biggest investment. Well, it is. It is. And that's certainly been, been the case for us through the years. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, and I, I wanted to um, to touch on, so so things began to grow. You've got Thread and you've got um, you've got a whole a whole suite now of different stabilizers, not just that first Solvi, but there's all different iterations um, of it. And and I think that there was one that was actually really interesting and maybe sort of unexpected. Um, so so sulky sticky fabrisolvi which i have used many times but is now being marketed under different names and one of those names is sulky stick and carve which is mm-hmm. um which is for use carving pumpkins transferring designs to pumpkin carving and uh, a chef came to you with this idea so could you tell us how that happened 
Well, that, that was, you know, what, what, when we first uh, brought out the Fabrisolvi, it's a, it's a water-soluble stabilizer that has more of a fabric feel and touch to it uh, than as opposed to Solvies, which are a film. Um, so there's greater flexibility. There's there's uh, greater strength in in being able to sew larger amounts of thread uh, across it. Um, so anyway, we we brought out the Fabrisolvi, and then we were able to figure out how to put a sticky back on it that would also dissolve um, when when you got it wet. And uh, uh, so the the natural inclination for us is because. People knew about Fabrisolvi. We wanted to, we, the, the brand name was Sticky Fabrisolvi when we put a sticky back on it with a release sheet. Uh, so after several years of selling Sticky Fabrisolvi, we, I got a phone call or email, I guess, from a, a guy in California who was who was uh, uh, was a chef and then also did uh, various different uh, fruit carvings for for occasions, you know, he'd, he'd carved watermelons was the thing he was doing the most. And he was just raving about sticky Fabrisolvi for doing watermelons because the hardest part of, of the process, uh, if you're not super artistic to start with, uh, it, to create your own design is to have a design that you can put in place that you can, that you can cut out. And uh, so he, he had tested and tried numerous other products and just, found this to be the absolutely perfect thing to do that, uh, to do his uh, watermelon carving. So we uh, uh, did some extensive testing of our own and, uh, and uh, found that uh, the most difficult part of carving a, a pumpkin uh, for, for the, the beginner or for anybody really, uh, again, is to get that design on a round surface and, uh, you know, we, we were looking at how people were doing that and are still doing it today. People that don't know about stick and carve, you know, they're, they're taking a flat design and somehow taping it onto their, onto their pumpkin and then tapping holes around the design so that when they pull that away, they would have the little holes to carve from one point to another. Yeah, I've done it and, that way. <laughs> yeah, I know. And that's the hardest part of the whole process. Yeah. Uh, you know, a flat design on a round surface. And uh, uh, so the sticking carve, you know, you, you, you can get a design off the Internet. Uh, there's numerous designs that you can buy and you can you can download and, and put a eight and a half by 11 sheet of sticking carve in your copier or your printer and uh, print that design right on there. Peel that the release sheet off, throw that away and just simply stick it in place and pat it down and it adheres right to that dry dry pumpkin. And uh, you can then uh, proceed to carve uh, every aspect of that. And when you're done, you can just take a, a wet towel and wipe across that and it's totally gone. It's just that easy. And so in or instead of sort of saying, oh, gosh, what a weird use of our product, that's not what it's for. We are this sort of, you know, purist company that's only using these products for, you know, fine embroidery or for, you know, beautiful stitching heirloom, you know, stitching or something like that. Instead, you said, OK, here is actually a really good use for this in a different market, a Halloween market. And we're going to get a new name for this product, uh, for this market and go for it. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, the people can use that product year round because you can, 
carved gourds and and uh, uh, cantaloupe and you know every imaginable kind of thing. Woodworkers can use it. Uh, there's just any number of different places in other crafts that you can that you need a design in place to do something over the top of. And uh, this is perfect for that. But yeah, I think yeah. It, it's kind of neat to be nimble enough to be and sort of not so pure. <laughs> so, you know, sort of stuck up or something like that, but to be able to say, okay, here's a new way. And, and let's, you know, let's follow, let's follow what the, what people are doing, real people are doing and, and sort of listen to them and, and be flexible. And I think that that that's really, um, admirable. And, um, and, uh, I also wanted to talk a little bit about sort of the next generation at Sulky. Um, you, you you mentioned your son, Eric, uh, who is still, um, he's still a national educator. Is that right? Yes, he is. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so he's still working in the business, but you passed on the role of president in 2009 to Jason Prater, who was just 35 at that time. And I wondered how, uh, although he'd been working since 1995 for the company. So I wondered how you and Joyce met Jason and, and sort of how he sort of rose up through these ranks. Yeah, I'd be glad to share that. And, and incidentally, before we move away from Eric, Eric is a tremendously creative person. And, uh, you know, he's really known as the master of free motion uh, embroidery. He does beautiful, beautiful works of art with a straight stitch embroidery uh, uh, aspect to, to what he does rather than the zigzag embroidery. And he has... He, he has uh, online classes. He just taped a, a series of classes in Denver last week uh, through Craft uh, uh, University, the F&W company. Oh, yeah. um, that will be available, I think, uh, in August. But uh, this is the second uh, of his courses. He does a, a basic uh, free motion, uh, and then this is the intermediate uh, or for those that already know the basics, they can they can pick up from there. But uh, Eric's desire in life is not to be the administrator to do the you know he, he, he's more of a Joyce type person uh, who loves the creativity, he loves to teach, he loves to entertain, and, and he's fabulous at doing that. So um, I, you know his role in the company. He started repairing sewing machines in our retail store when he was 16 so we could get money to to run his car you know which is pretty important for a 16 year old and uh and, and he's been in the business uh through the years and done every imaginable aspect of it uh to today when he's 51 so uh he, he's a he's a real treasure but anyway J jason's story is that uh he, he came to us as a as a 21 year old uh, and uh, his uh, stepmother was working for the partners, Gnold, um, and uh, he, he got married in, in Louisiana, moved to Atlanta, and she got him a job in the warehouse at, uh, uh, for, for working for Gnold. And uh, he, he did that for the first year or so, uh, gradually moving up uh, you know, his his work ethic and his, his his mind works in such ways that he's always looking for better ways of doing things and ways to save money and you know that's not lost on a business owner uh, who's who's got somebody who's who's uh, uh, chomping at the bit to help them save money and to get the job done better and faster. Um, so you know within a very short time uh, he was uh, Ganol promoted him to customer service. 
and uh, he, he did really super well there. They, they moved into inventory management, um, and uh, about that time, um, he also started doing the inventory management for Salky. Um, and uh, we, uh, my, my partner and I, uh, worked um, uh, in encouraging him to to get a, a further education. He just had a high school education at that point. Um, so uh, Ganold actually ended up paying for his four years of college. He went to uh, Kennesaw State University uh, for four years, worked full time, uh, graduated with a 4.0, and uh, you know we knew we really, <coughs> excuse me, really had had uh, had something that uh, a person that uh, you know had the drive and ambition to really get ahead. And uh, so when once he got done with college, we brought him into the sales side of of Salky. Um, he ended up working in that. Um, uh, side by side with me in, in that aspect, um, made him a vice president early on, and and uh, in uh, two thousand, see two thousand four, <clears throat> I told him that uh, if he was interested, I'd put him on a five year path to run the company, and would mentor him through those five years, and uh, um, basically we we followed that path. Uh, Virtually every decision, every thing that uh, that was going forward with our business, um, he was involved in in uh, in the whole thinking it through process, and and uh, it, it became the question was, well, Jason, what would you do? Uh, that was always my question to him all through those five years, and I found that uh, 99.5% of the time he was thinking exactly on the path that I was on, and. Uh, and so I, I really felt very confident when I turned the reins over to him in 2009 that uh, that he could run the company, and he's just done a tremendous job ever since then. Wow, that's and, a that's a really fascinating story. He's literally worked in every single aspect. It sounds like, and had such wonderful mentorship from you all along, and from the company putting him through college. And that's really an inspiring story. And and in the end, you know, as you and Joyce retire. I know you're still involved in the company, but, um, but not in sort of that role. Um, did, is this something that you end up selling or is this something that you sort of, how, how does that work? I just don't know how that, that works sort of what, what would you do at this point? Um, you know, and, and that's always uh, something that's on our mind. Jo Joyce decided two years ago to fully retire. Uh, she really just got to the point that age 65 that she really just didn't want to have to produce things on a, on a deadline any longer. And, uh, and so she's been fully retired for two years now. Uh, I initially, I stepped back 10% a, a year from 2009 for the next four years. And I've kind of stayed at the 60% level. If that's something you could quantify. Um, but you know, the, the, uh, uh, and I, I work actively and vigorously to keep in good shape and, and to keep uh, my mind active. Uh, and, and, I, and I thoroughly enjoy every aspect of this business. I, 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 I wouldn't in, enjoy doing the day-to-day -day operation anymore, so having been away from that for eight years. But, uh, um, you know, I, I enjoy my participation in the company and, and uh, expect to continue to do that as long as I'm physically able. 
in terms of selling a business, that's always a challenge when you have a partnership. And, and certainly that's something, you know, you, you want to consider if you get into a partnership is, uh, uh, you know, what, how, how can we get out of this? How can we get our money out of it at some point? Right. And uh, basically, you know, selling 50% of a business uh, is a challenge, quite frankly. It's, uh, it's um, uh, we've talked to a number of people through the years that wanted to buy our part of the business. But, you know, when they when they saw the structure of the business and, and that it is a 50-50 partnership, and basically that means, you know, neither party has control. Uh, so, you know, everybody has to agree or nothing can change. Um, and, and that's really the, the reality of a 50-50 partnership. While we did incorporate the business, uh, moved away from the, the joint venture partnership structure, we moved away from that in 2001 and incorporated uh, so that at, at that point we could have a president, we could hire a president anytime that a president needed to be hired to run the business. It wouldn't have to be uh, the president of Gnold and the president of Speedstitch were the two managing partners. And so if one of them uh, withdrew or died or uh, retired, uh, then, you know, if that was the case with Gnold, and it is what happened really is that the, the guy that I had worked with only prior for, for years and years uh, was going to retire. And uh, they, you know, the, the next president of Gnold had no idea of all the things that we had gone through to, to get to where we were. Mm. And so, so it just became more logical as we, as we all got older to have a corporation that had a president and, uh, and that company would then pay all of its employees rather than dispersing profit where each, right. uh, each of the two companies would then go from there. So, you know, the, the short answer to your question is that, uh, uh, it's, uh, at, at some point, you know, we would like to, uh, be able to sell our, our share of the business, um, the, just from the standpoint of, of, uh, you know, at, at, at the time that you pass away, it's easier to pass cash on to your That's right. next, uh, next of kin rather than passing on half of a business. Which they uh, then may have to sell. You know, they then may be, be stuck in a situation <laughs> of having to, to sort it out, you know. Um, and so, right. So it does make it simpler, but I can see the complexity there in forming with this partnership. Um, so that's, that's really a fascinating case study about, about, uh, yeah, being able to pass this on. So, um, uh, okay. So I, I wanted to just make sure we talked a little bit about sort of your recommendations, which really have to do with some of your your lifestyle choices about how you enjoy or spending your time these days. You have um, four children between you and six grandchildren and four great grandchildren. That's wonderful. Yes, it is. <laughs> My goodness, yeah. Um, and you are an avid motorcyclist. I have been, um, and, and still are. We. we uh... Um, actually, when I first met Joyce back in 1974, I, I was I had a two wheel motorcycle at that point, and and uh, we enjoyed some trips together on that, and and kept a two wheel motorcycle until 1986, and she always enjoyed that uh, as well as I. Uh, when we started uh, the 
the uh, sulky business in 1987, I knew that the traveling was going to be very intense. Uh, I, I planned to do, you know, 20 to 24 trade shows a year, plus calling on other major clients. And so I, I was, I traveled very extensively. So sold the motorcycle and uh, didn't get another one until 2004. And by that time, we had had, uh, had a second home in North Carolina in the mountains of North Carolina. And, and uh, we wanted to... Uh, to get a, a motorcycle and couldn't find any any place where we could uh, store that because we were our house was up a long gravel road curvy gravel road and i didn't want to have to go up and down that on two wheels so anyway ultimately uh one of our friends got a three-wheel a trike is what they call it front everything looks you essentially buy a brand new you know, Honda Goldwing, and you chop off the back and you put a trike conversion on it. So it's got two wheels in the back. So that is uh, what we bought in 2004, really at Joyce's urging. And um, in 2005, we took our first uh, really long motorcycle trip. It was a little over 5,000 miles with uh, with uh, two friends of ours, uh, that, that uh, uh, two couples, each of them had trikes. So we did a three and a half week uh, trip um, out uh, through uh, Colorado and Utah and, and that area of the, of the world. And I just fell in love with that. And uh, so once uh, once we were able to uh, to get into the semi-retirement stage where I could take longer periods of time off, that three and a half weeks was the longest I'd ever, ever been off. Uh, you yeah, know, if, I, if, I, if, I got a, if I got a week off anywhere, it was really something. Right. So uh, anyway, uh, you know, I, I always thought I wanted to, you know, take six months off and ride all over the country on a motorcycle. That was my uh, thought when I was 50. But the reality uh, in uh, 2012, we did our very longest ride. That was uh, and just Joyce and I did that. Uh, and we were gone for 46 days and we did just a shade over 10,000 miles. Wow. We were in and out of every one of the major national parks in the country. And, you know, we were all the way out around Puget Sound in, in Seattle and and came down the West Coast, uh, uh, Pacific Coast, all the way down almost to San Francisco. And again, in and out of all the national parks. So that was just a fabulous trip. And uh, pulled a trailer and and uh, had all of the things we needed in there. I had my golf clubs and and our clothes and uh, for various different temperatures. It got down below freezing a few times in some of those parks out there in, in uh, September. And uh, so we had, had lots of different uh, layers of clothes to put on. And and uh, so I'm, I'm kind of, you know, got hooked on that. We did another ride in 2014 that was a little over 8,000 miles. And we did that out through Western Canada through Banff and Jasper National Park and those areas, um, fabulous scenery. Um, so, you know, that's, uh, we're, you know, not as inclined, I think, to do super long trips. Uh, I just drove to Ohio to three weeks ago uh, for a family reunion. That was about 1,400 miles altogether, but we do love it. We're in the mountains in North Carolina, so our, our day rides here for 100, 120 miles, and Lots of curvy roads and beautiful scenery. That's kind of what we're hooked on. That's wonderful. It sounds really fun and adventurous way to spend some of your retirement years. So, um, Fred, thank you so much for for taking the time to be on the Walshy Naps podcast. I so enjoyed talking with you. Well, I enjoyed being with you today, Abby. 
Thank you. And you've been listening to the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, walshynaps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing, blogging, and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. Today's episode was brought to you by Girl Charlie Fabrics. If you are on the hunt for one-of-a-kind knit fabrics and indie sewing patterns, look no further than girlcharlie.com. Girl Charlie Fabrics stocks a wide range of florals, novelties, solids, stripes, and more. And they're all shipping for the low price of only $7.99. So find your perfect fabrics and patterns to satisfy your sewing needs at girlcharlie.com. Thank you so much, Girl Charlie. And if you enjoyed this show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.